0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. We hope you're joining us after listening to part one of this episode, which we released last week. But we'll start the episode out with a quick recap of what we covered once we get down to business today. First, I just want to give a quick shout out to Carter for winning our Beyond the Breakers March Madness Challenge in the men's tournament. So congratulations, Carter. Imagine us giving you a hearty handshake in congratulations. Also, shout out to Taylor for winning the women's tournament challenge. And I actually have Taylor with me here today. <laughs> uh, so congratulate him in person. Congratulations, Taylor.
1: Hey, apparently I know more about women's basketball than I thought I did.
0: I mean, picking South Carolina was was a solid choice. There um, was a lot
1: of chalk, a lot of chalk on those yeah. picks.
0: That was fun to be able to, to play with uh, some of our listeners and just, you know, it's, it's always an enjoyable experience, and you know, usually the, the more people, the better with something like that. So that was yeah, fun. Yeah. Was uh, we'll, nice. we'll keep an eye out for more stuff that we can do. World Cup is probably our next one coming up we want to sure. do. Yeah. We'll get to that. I don't know. What else have you been up to?
1: Uh, not a whole lot. Um, went to uh, a friend's improv show yesterday for the first time. I'd never done that. That was pretty cool. Uh, my only exposure you- to improv previously was uh, Michael Scott in the office.
0: Were you doing improv or watching
1: improv? Absolutely not. I was watching the improv done okay. by others. That was the way it should be. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. It was I didn't really know what to expect going into it, but it was fun. It was at the uh, the Black Box Theater in Dayton, Ohio.
0: Not knowing what to expect is literally the point of improv.
1: That's this is true. This is true. It was a good time though. It was it was a lot of fun. What about you? What have you been doing?
0: Not much interesting, I don't think. Watching baseball, of course. This was you know yep, opening week yep. for it's baseball. Nice to have baseball back. Brewers haven't been very fun to watch in the two games the that Reds. they've actually played. So that's not good. I mean, opening with a four-game series at Wrigley is not ideal. Um, it's really never ideal to be at Wrigley Field. It's not good. I hate Wrigley Field. I hate it too It's so much. Place in baseball and it's even, hot take. I know, but it's it even sucks. worse. Honestly, in if it can be in the first part of the season when the walls are just all dead and scraggly looking like they just look Mm -hmm. terrible it's just a i don't know it's one of those places that it's like a traditional baseball place that just should probably be uh torn down if you can tear
1: down yankee stadium you can tear down yeah
0: exactly i mean (laughs) and i mean like tomorrow Um,
1: i didn't know uh people probably didn't come here for hot sports takes but you're getting some this morning you're welcome
0: that's what we're saying here (laughs)
1: Uh, other than that, the only other thing is, I guess we'll acknowledge that the master—it's Masters Sunday if, for those who celebrate. So that's uh, that's something I like it. I'm, I'm into golf; it's fun. But uh, I know it's not not necessarily everyone's cup of tea. But it's uh, it's been fun. Uh, Masters is always fun to watch. I think
0: that's fun for you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy it. Is I,
0: Tiger in it? I heard his name um, a few times.
1: Is he in it? Yes, but not in any sort of competitive oh. sense currently. Who's gonna win He's the Masters? Number.
0: Who's who's Um, in position?
1: Some dude named Scotty Scheffler is uh, in the lead right now by three shots. I don't even know who he is. Isn't that a
0: baseball player? uh, Scott Scheffler. Oh, okay. The Reds. Close. (laughs)
1: close. Um, There's a couple names up there, like a Dustin Johnson or Danny Willett. Um, those kind of people that I know, but there's a lot of names up there I don't, so it might make it more interesting later on.
0: Vijay uh, Singh, is he still golfing? I don't think he still golfs anymore. On the senior tour, maybe? I
1: don't know. Very senior tour.
0: All right, well, that's fun. Yeah, I know we yeah. have some uh, some listeners who are into golf, so I won't say much more about it.
1: Um, <laughs> Let's talk about ships.
0: Yeah, so as I as I said, you know, we, we're coming in, this is part two of a very lengthy episode on the sinking of the Estonia. Last week, we... Covered some different aspects in the lead up to the uh, to the accident. I mean, this is one of those stories that especially anyone with an interest in maritime stuff is aware of. You know, we right. we, we know that we're more likely than not probably not telling this story to anyone for the first time. Maybe we are. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, but, you know, by and large, this is one that we've you know gotten requests for and people showing a lot of interest in. So we kind of are tackling this from you know, a little bit of a different perspective.
1: That's always sort of the debate we have when we do like a bigger story that we know has been covered really well. Like, you know, if we're doing something obscure, it's very easy to be like, hey, we're going to tell the story and no one has. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, what new thing can we bring to this? Or what can we highlight that's important? It's kind of always that balancing act on a bigger story like this.
0: It's like you've mentioned before, like the Titanic rule, like what could we possibly bring to a discussion? On something right. like that. But, you know, with, with Estonia, we we definitely wanted to cover it kind of like an obligation to cover it almost on a show like this. So, yeah, some of the things we covered last week, we talked about the uh, the development of those Baltic Sea ferries, you know, mm-hmm. spurred on a lot by rivalries between these companies like Viking Line and Celia Line. Uh, something I did want to point out for anyone who hasn't seen it, if you're on Twitter, uh, one of our followers, Adrian, who always shares great stuff uh, yeah, when he interacts yeah. with us, left a reply thread Um, It should be on our pinned tweet at the moment. I'll leave that pinned for a little bit. Um, Left a really great reply thread with just some really cool content related to the Estonia and some of those uh, some of the other ships that that are in this same area. Lego fans will be interested to see one of those posts in particular, but just a lot of great things, uh, information, photos, anything related to these Baltic Sea Ferries. Um, the old
1: school Lego thing was really cool. Like the one from like the 70s. Like mm-hmm. I didn't realize Lego was making like branded content back then. It was really cool.
0: Yeah, it's the kind of stuff that like those really big, really uh, involved Lego things that now I know are, are more common, you know, with different things. But um, but it's very cool to see that. Yeah. In that thread. So, yeah, check that out. Check out Adrian's thread. Um, and thanks again to Adrian for sharing all that. In addition to the corporate level stuff, we reviewed some of the issues with Roro vessels in general. Um, so not just these Baltic ones. One of the things that Roro vessels are unfortunately known for is their tendency to sink, sink quickly, and to sink with large casualty counts.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, um, that is true.
0: Because of the speed at which they sink, it's usually pretty hard to get off in time once it's clear that a problem's developing. So then we discussed some of the problems particular to the specific vessels employed in the Baltic passenger and uh, cargo routes. We talked about those two bow door styles, one right. of them being the clam doors that open side to side. And then we talked a lot about the visor system. Uh, so right. this one had pretty persistent problems. Failure of the locking mechanisms and the hinge mechanisms uh, help this door operate. We, I was w-
1: impressed by how long of a like a list that was that when you read those out last week, like that was. It wasn't just a one or two ship event like this. You know, there was seven or eight stories of this happening.
0: On different ships, you know, occasionally ships would have multiple problems with this. Clearly a known issue over the span of decades that this is unfolding with these. Right. So, yeah, we had that long list of these bow door incidents, none of which became fatal until Estonia. Towards the end of the episode, we got into the sequence of events leading to the sinking of the Estonia in the early morning of September 28th. 1994. Uh, So we talked about how around 1 a.m. on the 28th, an officer of the watch and multiple passengers started to hear metallic banging sounds, coupled with heavy impacts at the bow of the ship. You know, soon you've got water filling the ship. You know, running through hallways, running into compartments as it develops a serious list. With the list reaching 30 degrees, that's when the engines fail and the ship is now drifting in the waves. By 1:30 a.m., the list was at 80 degrees, and by 1:50 a.m. The ship had sunk entirely into the Baltic.
1: Yeah, that's pretty crazy. One thing I wanted to add in this section, uh, I know we like haven't talked in too much detail about the actual sinking, but one like interesting design flaw that I saw is that from the bridge you couldn't see a visor, mm-hmm. like you could not see like where it met the waterline. So once this happened, like they may have been aware that there was an issue, but they had no idea that it had been ripped off. Like, that's kind of crazy that you wouldn't be able to see that from the bridge.
0: Right. There's a lot of things in play here with how is this not detected or how is this not communicated? Uh, right. Because in in that list of incidents that we went through that, you know, were minor incidents because someone saw this and mm-hmm. they acted very quickly. And this is a sad example of what happens when that wasn't seen and acted on.
1: Yeah, I just thought that was really interesting, like, the, you know, you, you couldn't see it from the bridge
0: you cannot see that there's going to be this big hole in the front of your boat.
1: And I I guess that's not necessarily a design flaw as long as you have some other mechanism for monitoring that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah, that's not great.
0: Yeah, for sure. Like you need things like cameras and sensors, which maybe we'll talk about uh, (laughs) later in the episode. So continuing on more or less where we left off, uh, you know, last week we talked about what happened. Now we want to talk more specifically about why, and we want to talk about some accounts from those who were able to survive. Mm-hmm. To begin today, I want to read an excerpt from an Atlantic article called A Sea Story okay. uh, that we'll share in the show notes. Uh, it's a lengthy article, but it's worth the time. I'll also share it in PDF form on Patreon. Okay. Because it's from the Atlantic, so it's like paywalled, so you only get like what one or two free ones a month i think probably so if yours is already expired then you won't be able to read it so i'll link it to a, or i'll put a pdf on the patreon of that um, for everyone i'll be jumping in at the point when and i don't know exactly how to pronounce this man's name but i'm going to guess pierre TJ it could be tiger i'll go with TJ because his first name is pierre <laughs> i don't know i'm sorry he was a passenger aboard estonia So at this point, he's escaped from the ship and he's now in the water. He's Mm. among all these panicked survivors, as wreckage and rescue equipment that's floating, you know, in various stages of deployment. Quote, the air was full of spume and spray. TJ heard a frightened swimmer nearby calling for help. Encumbered by his vests, he paddled over to a system as best he could. Later, he spotted a life raft, swam to it and got in. It was characteristic of TJ that he did not cower in fear, but sat up to look outside. The Estonia was showing its keel and slowly sliding below the surface on a steep angle, stern first. It had raised its bulbous nose so high that parts of the bridge remained clear of the ocean's surface. Ever the observer, T.J. noticed that there was something very wrong with the front end, that the ship's openable bow had somehow fallen off. T.J. was face to face with the cause of the Estonia's demise.
1: That's so interesting. Like, Yeah, so the guy in the life raft is like, oh. Well, that doesn't look right.
0: There's a couple of accounts of people once they get in the water, once they're kind of in a place of relative safety, they obviously are you know looking at the ship and multiple people notice, hey, like the front is off.
1: Right. And I think especially to like someone who isn't as familiar, like how are you going to describe that in any other way except the front of the boat's missing? Yeah. Like if you don't know what you're describing, that's how you would describe it without the technical knowledge of what you're looking at.
0: Yeah, and that's got to be such a, I don't know, a crazy feeling as a survivor. You get out and you're wondering what happened, and then you see, like, that must be what happened.
1: It's like the ultimate, like, I'm not an expert, but, like, that's That
0: cannot be good. Right. You know, as has been really thoroughly documented, and like we discussed last week, the bow doors on these were really highly problematic. Mainly that visor-style door, like Estonia had. You know, these were hinged at the top of the bow, and they lifted up vertically. The force of the waves... That sea load that we talked about was known to damage the locking mechanisms and force these visors open while the vessels were underway.
1: This is so crazy because, yeah, like every wave is trying to push that open over and over and over.
0: Yeah. Uh, so we also saw that if these bow door issues were noticed very quickly and acted upon, you know, reducing speed, making for sure. these were minor issues. Tragedy was avoidable here if it was acted upon. Like you just said, if this was seen, speed was reduced. Really not that big of a deal. This is survivable for the Mm -hmm. ship. Right. So, yeah, Estonia really demonstrates in horrendous detail the other option here with these scenarios. If that's not what happens uh, in the reaction. Uh, So as it's probably obvious by now, uh, for anyone not aware of the story, those metallic bangs that we talked about at the end of last week's episode. Right. uh, That were reverberating through the ship. That was the visor and the ramp mechanisms, uh, suffering those failures, similar to what we talked about already in that long list.
1: Yeah, that has to be a bad feeling when you're a crew member and you just know, like, that's not a sound. That's not a sound I've heard before.
0: Mm-hmm. Those big bangs, those are important here. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to quote here from the from the big report, the one that, of course, we're linking to in the show notes. Shortly after one o'clock, a few wave impacts on the visor caused the visor attachments to fail completely. The visor started cutting openings in the weather deck plating and associated structures. Soon, the back wall of the visor housing came into contact with the ramp, hitting its upper edge and thus breaking its locks. The ramp fell forwards and remained resting inside the visor. In a few minutes, the visor started falling forwards. The ramp then followed the visor in a forward, tumbling motion. The visor side actuator was extended to its full length and was torn out of the hull during the final stage of the sequence. The visor subsequently tilted over the stem, left the ramp fully open, allowing large amounts of water to enter the car deck, and as it fell, collided with the bulbous bow of the vessel. So in the survivor accounts we'll get into shortly, the series of metallic... My notes say Metallica. <laughs> metallic. The series of metallic clanging sounds is described thoroughly, ending in a final series of loud crashes around one fifteen a.m. Interesting. And that final sequence of crashes that's that ultimate separation and it's impacting the bow as it falls off
1: yeah i think that's interesting because different passengers hear different numbers of like loud bangs and can fe- you know feel that at different times mm-hmm. so i think it sort of depended on where you were on the ship that some were probably louder or more you know consequential than others because mm-hmm. some people only report hearing like one or two and then other people hear every single one some people only hear that last mm-hmm. loud crash that you're talking about but It's just interesting that all throughout the ship, like this is heard and felt.
0: Mm -hmm. I know in a couple of stories, we've talked about instances where, you know, a disaster is primarily heard and not seen. And this Mm -hmm. is kind of an interesting subset of those types of things where you can feel what's happening. You can hear it, but maybe you can't visually identify what's wrong. Right. So around this time is also when one of the more famous parts of the incident takes place. And that is the alarm announcement in Estonian over the PA system. I'll do my best here. Haire, Haire, Laivalon Haire. Estonian for alarm, alarm, there's an alarm on the ship. How much
1: Estonian do you know?
0: That is it. (laughs) That would be all of the Estonian. Apologies for pronunciation, as always. So this was reportedly in a woman's voice sounding weak, either due to fear or injury. So that's, that's one of those moments in this that comes up in every article, everything that's written about this, that kind of chilling moment of this, you know, very weak PA announcement of, you know, there's an alarm on the ship because there's not a ton of communication going on here.
1: Right. Uh, Like, what does that even mean if you're a passenger that there's an alarm on the ship? Like, are you supposed to evacuate? Are you supposed to go to your room? Like, mm -hmm. what does that actually mean?
0: Yeah. I mean, this is as the list is developing, people are hearing these banging sounds. And then all you get is something's wrong.
1: And especially like, you don't want it to come from like a weak, frail, scared voice. Like you kind of want someone who sounds like authoritative to be like, this is what, you know, like, this is what's happening. This is what you do. Go.
0: If it sounds sort of non-standardized, it's probably not going to help the situation. If, if, it, if it doesn't sound like something that is, you know, an established, normal routine. Right. Um, as we know, you know, with the bow fully open to the waves, the car deck flooded quickly and led to the rapid listing and sinking of the ship. Uh, So the speed of this sinking, you know, meant that the overwhelming majority of the 989 people on board were trapped inside the ship. Uh, The exceptions to this are mostly the people who identified, you know, maybe not what the problem was, but at least the severity of the problem very quickly.
1: I don't know what's wrong, but it's definitely like not a normal problem.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, getting, you know, out of your cabin, out of the restaurant, wherever it is that you were getting out of there and getting to a deck that is escapable.
1: I think we've established pretty firmly in this podcast that if there's ever weird things going on and you're on a, a, a large ship, don't go to your cabin. Don't go to like the bowels of the ship, like get yeah. on a deck where you're outside and potentially near a lifeboat. Like mm-hmm. those are the people that survive these things.
0: Yeah. I mean, at worst, you get some fresh air. And right. You can just continue on with your day. Always good to, to be a little bit suspicious if you have that, that gut feeling. Gut feelings exist for a reason.
1: It was a great seven-day cruise, but I spent the whole time walking the lifeboat deck.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so because of how fast that list developed, some of the passages that would have acted as escape routes under normal conditions were blocked by water as the ship turned over. Oh, that's not good. Most of the stairwells, they ran, you know, fore and aft. So basically, if you could, if you could get into them... You could get up to it, up to the decks um, Mm -hmm. to escape. One in particular, though, it ran in like a transverse side to side uh, Mm -hmm. direction. So here in the aftermath, in the when they were diving on this thing, just a horrific number of bodies in this stairwell because it ran side to side. You know, once people had entered this stairwell, they realized as it, you know, sort of switched back the other way that now that direction is blocked. Right. And it's kind of a one way. You can't turn around because of how the ship is listing and how many people are in this thing. So yeah, that was one where when they dove on it, they basically could not even get through it to identify how many people were there. A
1: lot of these accounts like it's crazy how quickly and disorienting everything changed, you know, for everybody. It, it like the scene in the Poseidon Adventure doesn't seem that far off. It doesn't seem like that's Hollywood drama. Like mm-hmm. that's what a lot of these people experienced.
0: Yeah, with the survivor accounts, people talking about things falling you know, machines falling over, rolling through hallways, um, people clinging onto tables that are bolted to the floor. Yeah, like you said, it it makes certain far fetched things you might see seem not that outside of the realm of believability.
1: And like I don't know, the craziest thing here too is like the, everyone's fighting for survival and everything. And like if you're one of the lucky ones that makes it off, like your reward is to get tossed into freezing cold stormy mm-hmm. water. Yeah, it's not great. Like it's not like. Just because you get off the ship, you're gonna survive.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of bottlenecks in the chain of events uh, for survival here. right. We've talked about you know what happened to the ship more or less and again, that's not really our main focus here. That's you know established facts that are available. You know the report's really great. Uh, everything is linked um, mm-hmm. every it's very uh, easy to navigate. It's probably the the best report I've read in terms of finding what you want to find. So yeah, that'll be in the show notes, and I highly recommend that. If there's any part of this that interests you in particular, you want to read more about, that detail is probably available in the full report. Nice. So I want to talk a little bit about the search and rescue um, mm-hmm. aspect of this. This part it is a bit confusing because you have you have different ships responding to it. You have different uh, different exchanges being recorded. A lot of them happening at the same time. Uh, you know, you have different rescue organizations that are. You know, technically collaborating, but obviously they have to do things independently also somewhat. Mm-hmm. The first distress call was received from Estonia around 122. This was answered by the Mariela, uh, one that we briefly discussed in the last episode with her bow door incident. Mm-hmm. There was a second distress call uh, that went out at 124. This one was received by the Maritime Rescue Coordination Center in Turku, Finland. So if you read the report, you'll see MRCC Turku a lot. Uh uh-huh. and that's what that is the Maritime okay. Rescue Coordination Center. There's also one of those in Stockholm and in Tallinn okay. uh, that are all working together here. So at 142 Mariella informed Helsinki Radio of the developing incident. However, uh Helsinki Radio relayed this not as a mayday but as a pan pan message. That's interesting. Which when I was reading this I didn't I I was familiar with pan pan mainly just from black box down and it's use in aviation incidents. Uh I didn't know that it was also used in maritime uh, situations.
1: I I don't know that I knew it was used in maritime situations either.
0: I mean, I guess it makes sense since they both use mayday that they would both use pan pan. But
1: um, so it's just interesting that this situation is being called a pan pan situation.
0: uh, Because what a pan pan is basically it's, it's sort of a step below mayday. It's, If you're familiar with tornado watches and warnings, this is kind of the tornado watch, you know, where something serious is developing or has developed. But at the moment right now, it's not an emergency. Mm hmm.
1: Honestly, this is the, the pan-pan situation is, hey, our bow door has been ripped off. Mm-hmm. We're aware of this, and we are slowing down and returning home. Exactly. Like, that's the pan-pan situation.
0: Yeah, there's a portion here where pan-pan might be appropriate, where, you know, situation has happened. We are dealing with it in you know the ways that we can, but maybe have some people on standby in case it deteriorates.
1: Right. Or, you know, other vessels in the area, you know, like, come to my, like, you know, if someone <laughs> can come to my position and help me get back, like, that'd be yeah. great.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so that's how it was relayed. And one of the things wh- where this came down to is, as we've seen already with the communication here, some of these things are not being communicated in the expected sort of standardized way. Right. Um, so if, you know, this Helsinki radio receiving this is not getting it in the expected way of a, you know, Mayday call. Maybe they're not thinking that this is as serious as it truly is.
1: Right. It's more of a monitor situation rather than an act on it situation. Mm-hmm. This is also why standard processes are so important in these yes. kind of situations.
0: Yes, exactly. So everyone knows what's being communicated and what they need to tell other people. Uh, so obviously, with the safety of the ship being compromised, that pan pan message is not what should have been relayed. So MRCC and Turku coordinated the launching of ships and helicopters to aid in the rescue. This was in conjunction with MRCC in Stockholm and Tallinn, all contributing resources, um, you know, personnel, vehicles, equipment, things like that. The Celia Europa was also in direct contact with Estonia as the disaster unfolded. Celia Europa was the first ship to reach Estonia's position. That was about 212. So this is after she has sunk. Right. And Celia Europa's master is designated the on-scene commander.
1: Is that just what happens when you're the first like ship to show up and you're the captain? It's like you're in charge now.
0: Essentially, so the the rescue coordination was interesting. I didn't put a ton about this in my notes, but because you know these companies and these ferries worked so much in conjunction with one another, uh-huh. There was a sort of system in place where certain people had authority or or training or experience on these things and you know if you were a, the master of a ship arriving on scene they know that they need someone on scene to coordinate things you know the rescue people are there but they're stationed on shore they're not there yet they need someone on scene to direct rescue helicopters and rescue vessels where should they go where should they be looking for people mm-hmm. And that was how this uh, captain was designated as the uh, on-scene commander. So kind of a like a semi-formal designation where if you found yourself in this position, you should theoretically be equipped to handle it. Nice. You know, until you can be relieved by someone who is specifically trained for this job. Right. So the vessels on scene, they didn't actually deploy their lifeboats to help pick up survivors because of the weather conditions. You know, the risk of yeah. losing more boats. We talk about that all the time there's a certain risk assessment that goes into that because you could very easily just end up losing more people and equipment. Right. Um, so instead boats were lowered to the water, but not launched. And the survivors were transferred from Estonia's life rafts and then the boats were raised again. So basically just using them kind of like a crane or something.
1: Huh, that's interesting. That's, I mean, it's sort of a smart way to do that though.
0: Yeah. Sort of like maximize their usefulness, you know, while also minimizing risk to them. Yeah. So the vessel Isabella lowered her rescue slide and 16 uh, people were pulled up and rescued that way. That's a good thing. But unfortunately, those 16, you know, just from that one ship that accounted for about half of the entire number of survivors picked up by ships on scene. That's crazy. I Um, I know the weather conditions have a lot to do with that, but that's still mm -hmm. crazy. Yeah, only 34 people were rescued by other ships on the water at the time. Helicopters were more successful in rescuing people from the water. 104 survivors of the sinking were rescued via helicopter.
1: That's a lot of helicopter rescues. Yeah. Like what Uh, that looks like uh, doing that process 104 times. That's mm -hmm. pretty impressive.
0: One of those who was, you know, successfully recovered would later die in the hospital. So in addition to survivors that were being recovered, 94 bodies were pulled from the water. If you were listening carefully earlier, I mentioned how many people were on the ship total, mm-hmm. and the numbers don't add up very well there, right? Um, meaning that there were 757 still missing and presumed dead after a that's, certain point. Yeah, that's really crazy. Leading to a all told casualty number of 852 dead. Yeah, that's a lot. Um, and that number does include the one who died in the hospital. The last survivor was recovered around 9 a.m. on the 28th.
1: That was a long time in that water.
0: Yeah. Um, And after this, only bodies were pulled from the water and from life rafts. So, yeah, when you do the math on the survivors, that's 138 out of 989, about 14% survival rate.
1: That's, that's, uh, That's not great.
0: It's a truly horrific death toll. That's really the only word for it. And again, another example of how when these things sink, they take a, a huge percentage of the people on board with them.
1: Right. Yeah. And like, like we were saying here, there's so many different choke points and cutoffs of, you know, did you get out of your room? Okay, great. Did you, were you able to get onto one of the exterior decks? Okay, great. Mm -hmm. Like how long were you able to survive in the water? Like there's so many different spots here where this can go wrong.
0: Yeah. And, and even on a more granular level than that, in some of the survivor accounts, you know, you, you've got stuff like even if you get to the top deck, you know, say you're looking for a life raft or a life preserver, well, you know, now you've got to hope you have friend or something because you have to fight through this mob of, you know, 20, mm-hmm. 30, 40 people who are doing the same thing. Yeah.
1: I even heard um, one story. This guy talks about being like robbed of his watch mm-hmm. and his wallet. Yeah. As he's trying to get into a, you know, t- trying to get a life uh, belt and everything. Mm-hmm. Like, that's crazy that you're even thinking about that. Like, you can have my watch at this point. I don't I don't need it.
0: Yeah, I mean, the the level of societal breakdown under such massive stress like that is is incredible. So, you know, talking about the, the death toll, but I do want to talk, you know, a significant amount about some of the survivor accounts, uh-huh. those 138 survivors. Some of those were the crew. There's a lot of varying accounts, but also a lot of very, very consistent agreement on how this all went down. So quoting from this section of the reports... Uh, The commission has analyzed 258 statements from 134 survivors. The commission is aware that none of the survivors is a witness proper in the sense of an observer. All the witnesses are victims of the accident involved in it and a part of the chain of events. Their observations and recollections are thus influenced by prolonged anxiety, exhaustion, and stress all statements are furthermore restricted to individual experience on board and outside the vessel only and no witnesses have had any possibility of gaining an overall view so kind of a an interesting disclaimer there before introducing these things saying all these people have you know suffered the effects of what they went through we can sort of look at their accounts collectively and draw conclusions from that but you know we can't we can't value the exactitude of you know any one particular testimony because of some of these factors.
1: That's a really great statement about eyewitness, like statements in general of, you know, Mm -hmm. how often like I was eyewitness statements aren't as accurate as, you know, you would think that they would be in any situation.
0: Mm -hmm. A lot of the survivors here were interviewed multiple times, um, you know, sometimes with changing information or even conflicting information sometimes. And in general, weight was given in the report to the earlier testimonies, which were, seen as being theoretically more free of, you know, outside influence. Um, Yeah,
1: I can imagine that, you know, telling the story over and over, eventually, like you hear something, and you're like, Oh, well, that makes sense. And you kind of almost put it into your story. Mm -hmm. Or you hear someone else's account, and you know, it gets conflated with what you experienced. And it can probably be really hard to separate those things after a while.
0: Yeah, you know, thinking of all the chaos in the moment, you know, you, you maybe have heard something say, Well, did that did I see that or did I hear about that? Did I read about that? Did that happen to me? I right. mean, it probably did. I probably saw it. Yeah. So lo- lots of different factors going in there. And I think it's it's interesting that they include that disclaimer there at the beginning saying this is just a list of stuff that people have told us and we're trying to sort of reconstruct what happened. Interesting, just as a language note. So the whole report is in, I think it's English, Swedish and Estonian. The English text is kind of the like authoritative text. An interesting language note here, the term used in the report instead of interviewed is interrogated.
1: That definitely comes off as more aggressive. It does. To a native speaker.
0: Yeah, I mean, at, at least I don't know how that word is used in other dialects of English, but at least in American English, it makes it sound like the survivors are all complicit in the <laughs> in the sinking, it like it's their fault. But anyway, they were interviewed, a lot of them multiple times. Uh, so several members of the crew that night did survive the sinking, One of them was a, he was actually a training to be on another ship. He was a trainee second officer. Mm -hmm. He was training for service on the newly acquired Mare Balticum.
1: But like, what a story you have to tell when you transfer to your new ship. Like, guess what? I've done something you guys haven't.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Uh, So he notes there was one heavy wave impact at 11 p.m. on the 27th. So that's much earlier than the rest of this story that we've talked about. Mm -hmm. Um, But he's noticing these things. Obviously, he's training. So maybe his perception senses are sort of ramped up a little bit he's trying to take in as much data as possible um, so he's noticing some of these things a little bit earlier than we've talked about events in right. the story uh, he mentions heavy seas around midnight uh, then he's in his cabin he's getting in bed around twelve fifty. he starts hearing unfamiliar sounds and he's feeling strange vibrations he exited his cabin and he made his way up to deck seven by this point the list is around 45 degrees Um, So obviously, well, well beyond anything that you'd call normal. Right. He knows he needs to get out. So he makes it into the water, into a life raft, and he's rescued around 7 a.m.
1: I think what's interesting here is the thing that he doesn't have to be told to evacuate. He hears those sounds and just knows like this isn't right. Mm -hmm. And that's like the same story that the uh, the lawyer who's in the bar uh, that I was talking about last week, who had trained to be an officer on one of these vessels Mm -hmm. and decided it wasn't for him. It's just interesting that these noises and sounds must have been so out of the ordinary that if you had any sort of training, like you knew Mm -hmm. this isn't good.
0: Yeah. And as we'll see, like there's the training aspect of it, but also for any of these people who had used these fairies before, you know, a lot of them start noting that this is not normal.
1: Um, it's um it's sort of like turbulence on an airplane like you mm-hmm. know you you go through it sometimes you're like oh this is uncomfortable i don't like it and every once in a while you'll do like you'll have a, kind of a big rise or fall and you're like mm-hmm. oh is that out of the ordinary like you see people starting to look around a little bit yeah it's sort of that
0: you grip your seat a little bit tighter um <laughs> because that would save you if the plane crashes uh, uh so another one uh another survivor account here is, is the able seaman of the watch so this is sort of like ground zero for these accounts. He's the only survivor from those who were actively on duty on the bridge during the sinking. And this is the crew member who originally noted those sounds from the car deck. He was doing his rounds and he's, he's down there when he hears these metallic bangs and he's, he's trying to investigate to see what's happening.
1: He's probably like also the only crew member that could be like criminally charged since he was technically (laughs) working.
0: Yeah. So because of his role as a really key witness to these events, he's actually interviewed, or interrogated eight times in the aftermath of the incident.
1: Just reliving that trauma over and over and over.
0: <laughs> yeah. So the the timeline's interesting. So he's he's interviewed twice on September twenty eighth. So sort of the day after all of this. He's interviewed on October third, October seventeenth, November seventeenth, and December third. Uh, he's interviewed on March thirty first of nineteen ninety five and January twenty fifth of nineteen ninety six. These interviews are conducted by the Investigation Commission, the Finnish police, and the Estonian police. Uh, so after those first issues on the car deck, the able seaman returned to the bridge, but he apparently wasn't there long, possibly for as little as two minutes uh, before mm-hmm. he was ordered back down to continue investigating this. He was told also to, to go with the bosun, uh, who was personally responsible for the bow door operations. At this point, the bosun was actually off duty and asleep. Uh, But the situation was, you know, deemed serious enough that it warranted waking him up, which is, you know, relatively serious. They're not going to do that for no reason.
1: Yeah. If you're waking him up like it, you mean business, like because I I highly doubt that's someone you just want to wake up like, oh, never mind. We've got it figured out. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you're not going to waste that guy's time. Like you're only going to do that if you've got a legitimate issue.
0: Yeah. So as this uh, able Seaman is on his way back to the car deck, the list develops significantly and he's unable to get there for various reasons. Uh, so you've got falling objects, blocking stuff. You-, you got people stopping him on the way in need of assistance. Mm-hmm. Um, this is well past the point of being able to just do his routine duties. Also, the car deck is locked. So he's sort of waiting for that to be unlocked when he realizes that so he-, he doesn't have access to the car deck. even. Apparently not. He's waiting at the information desk. Um, like, like i can
1: see kind of like for security reasons like why you wouldn't want just anyone to have access to the car deck mm-hmm. for you know for breaking into someone's car or like the trucks right. and things that are using it but like you'd think he would
0: have a key to right this. you would think a watchman would be able to get in there
1: like um, i could like i would just think that would be part of the duties you'd be entrusted with at that point
0: yeah so i don't know i mean there could be other factors to it. maybe i don't know if he had access to it but he i don't know forgot his keys on the bridge or something who knows um but he's waiting for that when he kind of realizes that he needs to get off. Uh, so once he realizes the ship's sinking, he gets to an open deck and he ultimately gets into a life raft. He's one of the several who notes that the bow visor is missing. One of those, you know, painfully obvious things in retrospect. But at the time, you know, clearly the crew didn't know right. exactly what was happening.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, how much of a surprise was it to him when he gets off that vessel? And he's like, what? What is this? Like,
0: Well, also imagine his chances if he actually is able to get into the car deck. Right. If he manages access to that at the time. He's not getting out. There's no way he's getting off the ship.
1: Yeah, that is like a really fortunate circumstance of, of that being locked and not mm-hmm. being able to get in into there.
0: Yeah. Another account here is from the third engineer. So third engineer reported overhearing on the radio from the chief officer that the cars had to be carefully lashed due to the weather that was being expected. So this is during the loading process, taking uh, special care with these cars and how they're. Uh, how they're secured because of the weather they're going to encounter. Obviously, with things like this, one of the concerns is that your cargo is going to start moving around and cause stability issues.
1: If you're interested in that, read or listen to our episode about the SS Milwaukee.
0: Yes. If you want to see what happens when a train comes loose on one of these ferries or a similar type of ferry. The engineers in the control room, they had a monitor, a Mm -hmm. video monitor showing the car deck so they could keep an eye on things, you know, water ingress cargo things like that so they, they could keep an eye on this he stated that he that he'd never before felt such powerful blows against a ship as the ones described hmm. just after 1 a.m
1: it does seem to be a common theme that this isn't just a regular storm like this storm is worse than what most people have probably seen right
0: mm-hmm. yeah it seems like a particularly severe storm so at 115 he noted water coming from the bow uh, from the sides of the ramp so at this point we know like the visor is coming loose and that water's coming in. We talked about how the ramp, the way that it's sort of connected to the visor, the mm. ramp doesn't necessarily make a watertight seal, especially if it's being yanked out of place by the visor. That doesn't so. sound great. So much water's coming in that the monitor actually became unclear from the from the water spray. Really? Um, and according to the third engineer, this same image would have been displayed on the bridge monitor. Hmm. So... Theoretically, the people in the bridge, they can see all the same stuff. They can see that there's enough water coming in, that it's obscuring the camera. Uh, It's coming in around this ramp. I would just think
1: that that would raise some alarms. Yeah. wouldn't be concerned about this.
0: Yeah, I'd be telling someone probably. So as the engines start to fail, there's really nothing left for them to do in the control room. I mean, that's why they're there. The engines have failed, so they decide to do other stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, So this third engineer goes up to deck eight to check on the emergency generator. When this failed, also he just started looking for a way out because at this point it's developed pretty I mean, at severely. At that point,
1: I guess like there's nothing else you can do either, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, in his testimony, he notes that passengers were opening life raft containers, but not knowing how to use them. So, sort of getting them open, but after that, not really sure how to you know make sure they're inflated, how to get them deployed properly.
1: And that's not great either. I mean, every every raft that you waste at that point is less people that potentially have a raft, you know, mm-hmm. for them.
0: Yeah, one of the big problems in this uh, survival and rescue situation was recorded as, you know, a lot of the life raft when they were deployed, they were deployed upside down. Mm-hmm. So like you could climb on top of it, but like these were supposed you... to be covered and sheltered. And so you right. couldn't really do that if it's if it's the wrong side up. So you actually do see a lot of people getting onto life rafts, but still succumbing to the elements because they're just fully exposed. I think, and
1: that's always like what we talk about with a lot of these like evacuations of these vessels and all that. And it's not as simple as like, oh, just step into the lifeboat and mm-hmm. you'll be fine. Like when you see these stories of everyone surviving and the lifeboat's working perfectly, like there's a lot that goes into that. Like mm-hmm. it's not as simple as it might seem.
0: Yeah. And, and, and it is difficult, you know, with large amounts of passengers on a, on a short trip like this to do, to do things like drills, but we do see the dangers inherent in, you know, if the first time you're deploying one of these life rafts or learning how to do it is when you actually need it. It's not ideal learning circumstances.
1: It's sort of the thing of like when you sit in the emergency exit row on an airplane and mm-hmm. they ask you if you can open the door. And I'm like, like, in theory, yes, I know how to do this. But like, uh-huh. if I had to, I don't know. Yeah, maybe.
0: Yeah, it's 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 that sort of situation. What what happens when you actually do need to be that person? Like,
1: like I don't know how I'll feel when the cabin's full of smoke and people are screaming. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I might be able to open it. <laughs>
0: yeah. So this third engineer, he was actually, he was washed into the sea. And it was estimated, actually, that he was one of the first to be rescued uh, from the water. That was around 350.
1: I feel like if you're a crew member who survived this, and like, this is how it happened... There's just no way you can feel any of that, like the shame or like anything like that of being like, oh, I was one of the first people rescued because I jumped in a lifeboat right away. Like mm-hmm. this is purely random, essentially, that he's he right.
0: Yeah, it's you know, you see even and sometimes there's people who do sort of get a quick jump on trying to escape. But, you know, the way that they've chosen to escape is blocked. And right. so, you know, they're just as doomed as someone who stayed asleep in their cabin.
1: Yeah, like there is, like, I don't think you can overestimate, like, the element of randomness in some mm-hmm. of this.
0: From deck one, so now getting less from one specific person, but just from compilations of of survivor mm-hmm. accounts. So from deck one, a lot of people were unable to sleep because of the ship's motion. And in this case, maybe that's a good thing. If you, right. if you were awake the whole time. Numerous passengers uh, start, you know, they're hearing and they're feeling strange things that aren't normal for one of these ships. One recorded banging, thumping, clanging, uh, things like that.
1: Really, really none of the things you want to hear when you're out.
0: Quote, blows against the hull as if someone were hitting it with a large stone. That's not Um, great. um, Another quote here. The other witness in the same cabin did not hear these blows, but was also worried. After a while, she heard a faint new bubbling sound from above, like water being poured slowly.
1: (laughs) I don't even know what that would be, but it would terrify me.
0: Yeah, like imagine being in a cabin in a ship and, you know, you're very low in this ship and you start hearing water above you.
1: Yeah, no, um, thank you.
0: Is not good. I think that's very interesting because this, you know, these passengers who are sharing a cabin, I I don't know if they're like husband, wife or, or what the situation is there, but they're in the same cabin. And, you know, the one says it sounds like someone's hitting the side with a large stone. This other person in the same cabin says she can't hear it. But then they can hear
1: bubbling water.
0: Right. So it's it's a very confusing set of circumstances here of like what different people are hearing, what people are reporting, because you'd think that even if maybe one person couldn't hear it as well, you would hear banging like I, that. And
1: I guess you don't know like what their state is. Like, are they like, you know, do they pop a bunch of Dramamine to try to not right. like deal with the seasickness? And, mm-hmm. you know, they were sleeping off and on. But like, yeah. yeah, you would think that if it sounded like that, both people would hear something.
0: Yeah. And like, again, not calling into question what people experience is just a, a Crazy demonstration of, like, how different experiences can be, even from someone who's experiencing it at the same time and place.
1: Again, like we said with eyewitness stuff, just how unreliable mm. it can be.
0: Yeah. This witness stayed in bed for about five minutes, then reported a, quote, loud scraping, howling, creaking, and screeching sound as if something large and heavy was sliding.
1: Like a like a hood?
0: Yeah, which, as we know, is exactly 100% what's happening here is a right. big piece of metal sliding off of another one from deck four. Uh, so this deck had passenger cabins, the uh, the conference area, which was closed at the time. You know, it's one in the morning. Right. Um, and the nightclub, which was open because it's, you know, one in the well, morning. in the morning. Several people from this deck, they reported seasickness. This was a pretty widespread thing. You know, people were reporting that they were seasick just because of how the ship was moving. Mm hmm quoting from the report here one witness lying awake in his bed wondering about the blows from the waves and the ship's speed which he thought too high for this kind of weather so again some of these passengers are in agreement that we're probably going too fast
1: that's that's very interesting that yeah like people with no training or even like this just doesn't feel safe
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, one witness felt that the ship was behaving strangely as if plowing heavily right through the waves
1: uh, uh because it slowly is more and more
0: <laughs> yeah and this is truly what's happening because you know rather than going over these waves if the front of your ships open you're sort of just gonna like gobble its way through lower and water. lower
1: each time
0: yeah so yeah it's it's amazing how accurate uh some of these passenger mm-hmm. assessments are without seeing anything directly of what's happening but thinking man it, it really feels like you know we're We're taking these waves very strangely or it really feels like we're going too fast or Mm -hmm. that really sounds like a big metal thing sliding off. (laughs) Uh, So from the nightclub, one passenger noted a crack in the ceiling with water pouring down Uh, (laughs) and he escaped up the staircase early before any crowding. There were only six people in the club apparently at the time and they I don't know for sure if all of them escaped, but it's it's said that like there was no crowding effects there because of, you know, there just Mm -hmm. weren't that many people. They were able to access staircases and get out. So from deck five, there were actually 31 survivors that came from deck five. Uh So, I mean, a a pretty good percentage.
1: Yeah, actually, that is a big um, chunk
0: of the total survivors. Uh, Quote, some seemed to be apathetic and bewildered, but others shouted to the rest that they must get out quickly. Only a few responded throughout these reports. It's interesting how often the word apathy or apathetic comes up. Yeah. Um, Yeah,
1: I heard of that a lot, too, in the accounts that I I watched and read.
0: Yeah, and you see it, you know, sometimes from the first instance that there's something wrong, you know, people either not acknowledging that something's wrong or, you know, later on probably feeling that there's nothing they can do about it. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is there's there's sort of those two extremes of, you know, mass panic and, you know, just total apathy.
1: It's interesting, I think, like in a psychological level with some of this stuff, because you see some of the same stories on any traumatic but like long-running event like 9-11 you hear these Mm -hmm. same stories of people just giving up and saying like even though they're not injured or anything just i Mm -hmm. don't want to go any further i don't want to keep going down the stairs whereas with like an airline disaster you don't have time to think you either do it or you don't Mm -hmm. yeah there's no like half doing it the way that some of these people are yeah
0: there's an instance of a man trying to escape with his mother this one is a a pretty well documented one it's in that atlantic Mm -hmm. article so he's escaping with his mother as the ship is listing really heavily. So they're trying to get out. They're having to basically cling and jump from these these tables that are bolted into the floor and these pillars that are supporting the ship. That's really the only way out is is to move from you know table to table, um, things that are bolted down. Mm-hmm. Uh, so after some time, you know, trying this, you know, the mother starts begging her son to leave her, saying, you know, leave me, save yourself. And then, you know, after some significant convincing, he eventually does. And that's sort of the situation you're dealing with, you know. You you kind of had to be a certain level of fit to to escape in some of these situations. You know, if you couldn't pull yourself up by these handrails, you weren't going to get out.
1: I think it's like we almost always say in these, it's the same as the Edmela or any others. Women and children, especially, just just don't fare well in these situations.
0: Mm-hmm. Any anyone who is is not in pretty peak physical condition is going to struggle in a situation like this. Yeah. uh,
1: One of the women victims that survived in an account that I saw, I mean, she was a dancer like Mm -hmm. that on, on the vessel. Like that was her job. You'd have to assume she was probably in pretty good shape if she was a professional dancer.
0: Mm -hmm. So also from deck five witnesses saw a row of gambling machines fall down on people, but no one was able to do anything to help because if they release their grip. They'd be lost as well.
1: Yeah. It's gotta be a pretty helpless feeling.
0: Yeah, so not only are you holding on for dear life quite literally, you can't help anyone because you're 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 only going to, you know, get yourself killed. Right. So from uh from pub admiral, um another section of the ship here. Uh so here there was a karaoke competition and singalongs mm-hmm. going on.
1: This um, is actually the area that the account that the lawyer/ uh trained officer mm-hmm. comes from.
0: Uh, okay. You know, as as things are getting worse, the staff start to clear Glasses and things like that. All of the breakable stuff you'd expect to have in a bar. Mm-hmm. Um, around 115, a very heavy noise was heard and also felt, quote, the metallic blow was not like that of a sledgehammer, but gave a huge distinct metallic noise, like a shot reverberating through the hull. You've got people in the audience giving remarks like, oh, we've hit an iceberg, you know, because that's a a, a natural response to. The unknown or or thinking that something something might be wrong, might be off, you know, make a joke about it. That's a normal human reaction. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh,
0: So when the Estonia healed over the second or third time, all glasses and bottles fell on top of the female bartender and the refrigerators behind the bar counter came loose. The bartender who tried to brace herself against the bar screamed loudly and was knocked down and injured by the falling objects. That account didn't continue on with that. I, I don't know if she survived or made it out or. Got out of I, I can't situation. imagine
1: that that helped an already
0: bad situation. Um, so again, we see all the stuff moving around and, and shifting uh, as the ship lists more and more. From deck six, there were sixteen survivors. One witness was awakened by the regular blows from the waves, but noticed a vague trembling which deviated from the usual. You know, we talked about passenger experience and using these ships before. You know, if you if you have a normal experience to compare this to it's much easier to realize when something's wrong. Right. Uh, I saw people lying on the starboard side of the stairway, some seemingly apathetic and others with injuries that may have included broken legs. This Swedish witness also heard some message in a foreign language over the public address system. So this is that alarm message that I had mentioned earlier. Right. uh, That was in Estonian. And just as an interesting linguistic note here, that message, you know, just given in Estonian, may have been more easily understood by the finnish passengers just because of the language but a lot of the swedish passengers very well may not have known what that was even saying
1: it's interesting that they wouldn't have broadcast that in multiple languages knowing that like you know multiple <laughs> baltic nations use this
0: well right and and that sort of highlights the fact that it wasn't it wasn't really issued in any sort of standardized fashion right and I was not really able to really see any hard information on who even issued that alarm, right? Like whether that was a member of the crew or just someone who had access to the PA. But yeah, the fact that it was only issued in one language also sort of highlights why this may not have had as much of an effect, right? So from the casino, uh, so approximately five minutes after the heel, they heard the alarm signals. Uh, first, that first the word haire, the that Estonian word, two or three times. And immediately after that, a man's voice announcing, quote, Mr. Skylight, number one and number two. Mr. Skylight, one of those phrases also sort of made famous by this incident. Uh, Right. Mr. Skylight was the coded emergency notification for the crew. Mm. Um, And then the numbers after Mr. Skylight indicated, like, what particular scenario was this? Where did people need to go? What did you need to do based on what you had been previously assigned Right. Uh, in the emergency response system so the idea there being we need to inform the crew that something is up but not panic the passengers by saying you know emergency alert um, so we'll use this coded they're panicked
1: system. enough by the 35 degree list <laughs>
0: exactly so from deck seven there were 26 rescued from this deck the off-duty motor man he quote heard sounds like someone banging the hull with a huge hammer the sounds seemed to come from the car deck And his first thought was that the cars were loose.
1: Right. I mean, that would make sense, right? Like that that would be like your first inclination is that, oh, no, like one of the cars has come loose and it's banging against something.
0: I need to Mm -hmm. go check that out. The second engineer heard the beating. He thought it was coming either from lifeboats on the side of the ship or the visor. So someone who's clearly aware that this could be an issue. Uh When it stopped, though, he calmed down and he didn't phone the bridge to report it.
1: Uh Um I feel like any movement of the visor would 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 it like involve me calling the bridge and be like, hey, just so you know.
0: I mean, it could also have been a situation where, you know, he's he's not on duty at the moment and he's he's got to be thinking, man, this is this is so loud. Someone has to have reported this.
1: Yeah, there is sort of that bystander effect, right? Of like, well, surely someone else will say mm-hmm. something about the loud, bad noise.
0: Mm-hmm. So here the second engineer opens his door um, and he found the first engineer outside. First engineer says. Seems as if the bow visor has been thrown open. It'd be a good thing if we got her beached. And I huh. think that's such an interesting comment there, because like that is objectively the right move. Right. Um, you know, the first engineer, an experienced person, probably well aware of of this as an issue with these ships and of what needs to be done now. But it's just very interesting that the engineer is aware of this, but the bridge doesn't seem to be right. So from one other location here, quote, a terrible thudding in addition to the more natural blows they heard at the beginning. Sometime after one, the first bump came, a strange bang as though they were running aground where a bang is from sheet metal or metal rubbing against metal. Interesting. So obviously there's much, much more in terms of survivor accounts, little details. A lot of them do coincide in terms of their details. A lot of them are obviously very repetitive. So tried to pick out some some unique moments from this, um, to get some varied accounts.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting as much as they're different, they all do have like the same common themes of, you know, there's noises, there's the normal like pounding of the sea that you hear and you get used to. But beyond that, there was more, there were noises that stood out beyond those. There's the metal on metal there's a lot of like common themes here.
0: It's interesting. The, the metaphors people reach for to describe a situation that, they have not experienced before, and there's mm-hmm. there's no real great comparison to this. Um, so yeah, you, you hear about you know it's like running aground, it's like someone hitting it with a rock or hitting it with a hammer. There's some very gripping survivor accounts there. So this you know this is going to kind of lead us into the the wrap up segment here of the episode, and that's sort of some of the conclusions that were drawn from this uh, after this you know pretty lengthy investigation into why did this happen. That investigation report led to several conclusions. You know, as is painfully obvious now, Estonia suffered a failure of her bow-locking devices due to the wave load experienced on her voyage. These were as the heaviest wave loads she'd ever experienced due mm-hmm. to both the conditions and her speed. So numerous previous bow incidents with these ferries, including with her near-sister Diana II that we talked about last week, had not led to a systematic inspection or improved requirements. The turn to port exposing the open bow to the waves shortened the time it took for the ship to flood and sink. So idea being, if that's not done, it maybe doesn't save the ship uh, with the conditions as they are, but it almost certainly gives them more time, you know, more time to get close to shore, more time for rescue to
1: reach them. Even just more time for people to not be trapped in the bowels of the ship. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're going, you know, if if you can get more people to the top, to the lifeboat decks, even once you make that decision to launch boats, like maybe there's 300 people that can get Mm -hmm. into lifeboats versus, you know, the 100 or so that did.
0: Yeah. I mean, more time is never a bad thing in in a situation like this. And, you know, like we said before, we've seen situations where, you know, turning into the waves is absolutely the right move in Mm you know, nine out of the 10 cases we've discussed here, that's what you'd want to do unless you don't have a bow.
1: It's interesting you would make that decision. It's almost like you didn't know you didn't have a bow.
0: Right. And this is why this is why the communication and sharing information is so incredibly important. Right. Um, Yeah. Like all these actions by the bridge, they they indicate that they really did not know that the bow is fully open, you know, as the ship is listing. We mentioned how speed wasn't reduced, you know, to the point that, you know, passengers are noticing this, not just crew members, quote, a rapid decrease in speed at this time would have significantly increased the chances of survival. So we've said that the visor couldn't be seen from the conning position uh, Mm on the bridge. Visual observations were basically everything in preventing all those previous incidents from turning fatal. Someone saw that this was happening and they let the proper people know to slow down and we need to get to safety this links back to this communication failure. The bridge crew apparently did not check that TV monitor showing the car deck, the one that the engineer had talked about. And they didn't exchange information with the engineers in the control room.
1: Yeah, that's really crazy. Like, it doesn't make a lot of sense.
0: It doesn't make a lot of sense. And I feel like from from both directions and here, it's it's still kind of unclear to me, you know, not just why isn't the bridge asking for updates, but also How is the control room? How are the engineers communicating this to the bridge? Right. Um, So that's probably one of the most important factors here is the fact that some people had more or more relevant information than others, but that wasn't necessarily shared. Mm -hmm. I think the most fascinating mechanical element to me here, the position sensors showing locked visor, the way that they were basically rigged was they were linked to the side locking bolts on the uh-huh. visor saying basically if these things are in position it means that the visor is locked however <laughs> if your visor rips off entirely uh-huh the way i'm reading this at least is that those those bolts physically stayed in place uh, or at least did not indicate that they were a problem
1: So according to the sensor, there was no problem because the bolts were still there because it's checking the bolts, not the visor.
0: Yeah, as far as the sensor is concerned, that visor is still there as thousands of gallons of seawater are pouring in to the ship.
1: It's almost like that system's designed that like, oh, well, if the whole visor is gone, like you'll know, like you don't even need a sensor for that. Why would you need
0: a sensor for this? (laughs) But yeah, that that was a huge problem. The idea that there was no indication that the visor was had any sort of problem when it was gone entirely. Right. There's some evidence to suggest that the crew was largely unaware of other visor incidents. You know, we saw that engineer think that maybe that was a problem, um, but that was someone who was quite experienced with these. He had, he had probably either experienced them himself or, you know, heard about ships that it happened to. But if you've got maybe younger crew members, maybe they're not aware of this. Maybe this is not something that's being shared as much as it should have been. But, for us looking in retrospect, it's very easy to say, like, why wasn't that the first thing you checked?
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, you can always pick these apart after the fact.
0: But even then, it's it's kind of you got to think, like, if this is such a systemic problem, why isn't that information right. being more widely shared at the time? Right. So that's kind of the conclusions drawn from this. Like we've said, you know, it's a it's a tough story to research just because of how much there is.
1: Right. Yeah. There's a ton uh, of
0: information you know we haven't scratched the surface with our 2 plus hours talking about this there's tons of stuff out there to to check out to read about but yeah i, I i'm i'm glad that we were able to cover this one somewhat mm. you know this is it's one of the most well-known most thoroughly documented most widely discussed maritime accidents in modern times certainly you know there's tons of documentaries articles some musical pieces even podcast episodes that that deal with the tragedy I don't know. It, it kind of feels at times like a drop in the bucket of the overall sort of discourse about it, but um, right. yeah, it's uh, it's a story worth discussing and talking about because I was aware of it, but I definitely you know found things I wasn't aware of before in the process of researching this.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's also it's a relatively modern accident, and we don't talk about a lot of those, and I think that makes this one a little more scary because it doesn't feel like a black and white thing that happened on the Great Lakes in eighteen you know eighty mm-hmm. like it. You could see yourself in this situation fairly easily.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think, in terms of my final thoughts on it, so it's a it's a tragic story, not just because of the obvious, you know, numbers involved, but because it would really appear that all of the data and industry knowledge was there to prevent this from happening. Right. You know, these Bowdor incidents were a known problem for these ferries, and it was also known that if those problems developed, the response was to reduce speed and get to shore as quickly as possible. You know those previous minor incidents are only minor because of the response to them. Mm-hmm. You know, if you respond to a problem quickly and correctly, it may not even appear to be a problem, right, to an outside observer because you dealt with it so efficiently. I think you you see that kind of thought process with a lot of things. You know, we saw it with um we saw it in the beginning of COVID when that was really ramping up in the United States, where you did have a lot of medical experts saying, you know. This is what we need to do. If we do things correctly, this should appear not to be a big deal.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so that's that's where you kind of have that like that sort of it, bias. It's of always like,
1: hard to prove something didn't happen.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a much better way of saying it. Like it, it's hard to prove that this was effective because like, nothing happened. Why do I have to get a tetanus shot? I've never gotten tetanus. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, this is you know unfortunately the the, the tragic other option here of if it's right. not responded to in, in the way that those previous ones were. Um, yeah. And that's why I think it it is such an enduring uh, tragic story because of just, I don't know for, for, for all appearances, how preventable it should have been.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, I would say most accidents are hundred percent preventable, but this one in particular, all of the industry knowledge is there to, to make this not be an issue.
0: Mm hmm. So that's going to conclude our discussion of Estonia. You know, it's the kind of thing I'm sure we'll refer back to multiple times in other episodes. But uh, but that that should do it for our two part episode on Estonia. Awesome. Um, I guess it just leaves us to wrap up here. Well, if you've been with us the whole time here. Thank you for listening. We are on social media. If you want to reach out, we're on Twitter at beyond underscore breakers. We're on Instagram at beyond the breakers podcast. I think. And then we're at beyond. What's the email?
1: That's beyond the breakers pod at gmail.com.
0: Ah, uh, yes. Beyond the breakers pod at gmail.com.
1: Also, if you are interested in folklore and myths around maritime things, that will be our bonus episode this month posted on Patreon. So if you're interested in that, there's the $3, $5 tier to get access. I don't know. It'll be a fun time. We're looking forward to recording that one.
0: All right, so we have to go record that. Thank you for listening again, and we will be back next week with some more Shipwreck content for you.